Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Today we will be reading the 15th Psalm responsively. You can refer to the text and the reading printed in your copy or it's on the screen as well. So before we begin, please join me in a prayer of illumination. Oh dear Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. That as we read the scriptures together and your word is proclaimed that we may be led in your truth and be obedient to your will. Help us to always live for your glory, through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Psalm 15. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Those who walk in the sea and do what is right and speak the truth from their heart who do not slander with their tongue and do no evil to their friends nor take up a reproach against their neighbors. Despise the wicked are despised, but who honor those who fear the Lord, who stand by their oath even to their hurt. Money and interest do not take a bribe against the innocent. Those who do these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before I begin, I wanted to just bring to your attention, I know some of you have seen this. There's an insert in your bulletin this morning. If you would take a look at that. Last week we had a similar insert in as we were praying for the people of of Afghanistan. And this morning there is a prayer guide here for the Christians living in Israel, in Palestine, our, our sister church, the Christmas Lutheran Church, and its pastor, Munther Isak. Uh, Munther, I said Munther Isak. No, that's from Egypt. Uh, pastor Munther Isak, yes. He um, shared these prayer concerns with us. And if you, would, if you would take these with you, take a look at them. Um, we are God's church together. Next week, we may have a similar one regarding the people of Haiti. Our world is hurting, and we want to then remember those who are in trouble, those who are hurting. And our prayers, our prayers make a difference. So, and plus, it gives you an opportunity to learn a little bit about what's going on in another part of the world. When I was a little boy growing up, I had this love of Greek mythology, and I have one of those stories that I want to share with you. Sisyphus was once a king over Corinth, but he was punished by the gods for cheating death twice. But not only did he cheat death twice, he started boasting and telling people that somehow he had outsmarted Zeus. And so Zeus decided to teach him a lesson and punished him. And so the punishment would be that for all eternity, Sisyphus would be responsible to roll a big rock up this mountain. 
And the real punishment comes that as he's rolling the rock and he's getting close to the top of the mountain, he loses his control of the rock and the rock rolls back down the hill. So Sisyphus has to go back to the bottom of the hill and try to roll the rock up the hill again and you know what happened. He loses control. The rock rolls down the hill. And Sisyphus, for all eternity, is stuck in this repeat mode, trying to do the impossible, trying to do this never-ending job, a job without a finish line. We describe tasks today that are meaningless, tasks that are futile, tasks that are virtually impossible. The word we use to describe that is Sisyphean. You keep doing something, you never get it done. You never seem to arrive. Nobody wants to be caught in that loop. I don't know about you, but reading parts of Psalm 15 this week feels Sisyphean. It feels like there is this impossible standard. And why do I say that? Psalm 15 begins with a question that will trouble lots of people in the church today. Not just our church, but churches in general. The question is, O oh Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may abide in your temple? Who may dwell in your holy hill? In other words, Lord, what are the prerequisites? What are the standards for coming into your presence for worship? And it's a question that's directed at God. And as you know, we all ask questions, hard questions of God. Lots of people take delight in questioning God. Why, if God is good, is there evil in the world? Why did those soldiers who were there to help and those Afghans who were trying to leave the city of Kabul on Thursday, why did they have to die? Why did my loved one get diagnosed with cancer? Why, and this is a big one many of us often ask, why was my prayer not answered? You know, if, you re if you've been reading the Psalms, you will know that they are full of these kinds of questions to God. But the question that is asked here in Psalm 15 and verse 1 is not that kind of question. It's not a challenge question to God. It's more like a catechism question. It's a question designed to teach someone a truth. It's a question asked not by a rebel, some, demanding some kind of revolutionary answer. It's a question that's asked by, a, by, by, by someone wanting to know really the truth. Some scholars see Psalm 15 as a liturgical psalm, which means that it was designed to be used in worship, maybe like how we used it this morning, like a call to worship, getting the congregation ready before they climb those steps into the temple, and it asks a question to prepare the people to meet God. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? And you know, when I, when I read this, one would think maybe the answer that God would give is, well, remember now, when you come, bring an offering. Remember when you come, make sure to bring an animal for sacrifice. In other words, the answer that we would expect would be something external to the person. 
But surprisingly, the preparation for worship in the presence of God doesn't start with the external. Please hear me on this. It probes the internal. It probes the ethical, the, the relational, and the moral dimensions of the human person. Another way to say it is that God demands, God demands ethical standards that are not always visible and discernible to the human eye. Psalm 15 answers that question in a way that many church folks will find offensive. Some church folks would even laugh at Psalm 15 and its answer because here in America, America's sort of laid-back, coffee-drinking ambiance of many of our congregational, our contemporary churches, the notion that God might actually demand something of us before we come into his presence sounds foreign, it sounds antiquated, that the God of the 21st century asks only that we show up. Just come as you are. No, no questions. Ask no requirements. Just, just come on in. Now, of course, as an evangelistic strategy, such a casual approach has a lot to commend. Because for too long, our churches have laid man-made barriers in the path of seekers and maybe it's time for us to get rid of them. Now, on my pew where I was sitting, and maybe it's on your pew too, you'll notice there's a little decal, a little silver-looking coin on the, on the outside pew with a number. And for the longest while, I didn't know what those things are. It was when I was the pastor of the Presbyterian Church in Newcastle. In fact, one of my members from our great congregation in Newcastle is here with us this morning and with her family. But when I was in that church, that church got started in 1801. You know what was happening in 1801? The second president of the United States was just leaving office, John Adams. A church has been around a long time. And in that church, they have those same little decals on the pews with a number on them. And I think the ones back in Newcastle were were, were copper or, or sort of gold-colored. And I found out in that church, and it, maybe it's the same thing here, that back in the day, you literally bought your pew. That maybe, that's maybe how the church raised money. And you know, when you go into a church, when you go into a church sometimes, and somebody said, would say, you're sitting in my pew. And we get all huffy and offended, and we say, I'm never going back to that church. Well, back in that day, when they said, excuse me, you're sitting in my pew. They literally meant it was their pew. They paid for it. Aren't you glad we're not doing that anymore? So some of those things, I'm glad they were gone. But Psalm 15 insists that there are some God-made requirements for those who dwell and live in God's presence. We should be able to we should be able to come as we are, yes, but we shouldn't stay as we are. A friend of mine said that we, the church, must have a low first step. It should be easy to come into the church, but there should be a long center aisle. Come as you are. But if you're going to stay here, you're going to have to clean up your act. Conversion is simple, but discipleship is hard. 
It's not an easy thing to sort out and to keep straight because on the one hand, if we're not careful, this list that we see in Psalm 15 could easily lead to some kind of checklist morality and works righteousness. And you have to do all these things before God will accept you. And if you do these things, then you're clearly a superior saint. And we don't want that either, because that's not what this list is all about. On the other hand, we also don't want us to ignore this list, because if we do that, it could then lead to some kind of cheap grace, some very American notion that you don't tell me how I should live my life, a kind of moral carelessness. What Psalm 15 calls for, though, is that holiness that we find in Leviticus, where the writer says, be holy because I'm holy. And Jesus comes along and he basically says the same thing, calling Christians to holiness. And the writer in Hebrews says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So, before you tune me out and say, there he goes again, that, that Bible thumper, Pastor Ray, just, just hear me out this morning, because we live our lives today with a lot of requirements before we gain entrance. We sometimes shop at Costco, you know, especially when our family was bigger, we would go to Costco all the time. But now that we've shrunk, we don't go to Costco as much, but I do recall one time, because all you need to get into Costco is that you flash your card and, you know, you're in. And uh, I remember going in and I flashed my card and I got in with the big cart and, you know, after about an hour later, we've got our stuff and we're in the long line and we're waiting and we finally get up to the counter and the woman rings up the stuff I have and I hand her my credit card and the Costco card and she does her thing and then she looks up at me and she said, sir, your Costco card is expired. I said, oh, okay. Well, I said, I will... I'll renew it when I come back next time. She said, no, you, you really got to get this card renewed. And I tried to turn on my Jamaican charm. And she was like an iceberg. And she said, no, that's not going to happen. So I had to push my cart with all that stuff over to the membership counter. And I had to renew my card. And then just to pile on the indignity after paying for it and renewing my card, then I got into another line where there's this guy standing there I hand him my receipt, he just kind of looks at it and then scribbles over my receipt. And then I can walk out. Now you would think that if we ran our church the way Costco is run, all those little roadblocks and checks, the building would be empty, but Costco is a big American corporation today. People keep coming back by the thousands to put up with all those roadblocks. To gain admittance to Wrigley Field, what do you need, church? All right, maybe only one person went to Wrigley Field. To gain admittance to Wrigley Field, what do you need? You need a ticket. I had the pleasure last year of uh, playing golf at a wonderful country club. And I couldn't just show up on my own. I gained access because I knew a member of that club to get into your phone, to get into your computer, to get into your online bank account, your investment portfolio, 
and a hundred other privileged places you have to know your password. I think you get the point that I'm trying to make. We, we subject ourselves to a lot of rules, to a lot of requirements in many areas of our lives, but when it comes to the church and when it comes to God, we sometimes think we should just make it up as we go. God will understand. God doesn't really care about how I live my life. God should put up with my standards. And so that opening question directly addresses God, which implies that God alone has the authority to determine who may approach him. There are no man-made rules here. No man-made rules. God sets the rules. And like it or not, we humans may not just mosey into God's presence. And so I think the question is legitimate. Who? Who may then dwell with God? And so while there are no behavioral requirements for us to be saved, there are things you and I must do to stay united to God. We're justified by faith alone. But sanctification, transformation requires faith and obedience. What does it take then to dwell in God's presence, to live in union with Christ? What does it take? Well, Psalm 15 gives 10 or 11 possibilities, but I'm going to ask you not to push that number. This is not a picture. This is just a picture. It's not a prescription. This is a, a characterization. It's not a code of ethics. And I want you to notice if you looked at the list or you read it, it's printed in your bulletin, you're not going to see the fifth commandment listed from the, from the Decalogue. You're not going to see the seventh commandment listed from the Decalogue. You're not going to see the tenth commandment listed. And does that mean that God doesn't care about the family honoring mother and father? Does it mean then God doesn't care about adultery, and that's in the seventh commandment? Does it mean then that God doesn't care about being jealous and covetous of what other people have? And that's the 10th commandment, and the answer is, of course not. God cares about those things. So don't, don't, don't take this list and say, well, let me, just, let me just try to get this list done, and then I'm all right. Because if we would live in God's presence then, if you look at verse 2, God requires that we be blameless. And what that means is we would be people with character and integrity. We do what is right and we speak what is true. And then after that, that, that negative statement, then that positive statement then opens up an understanding of all the other negative statements that follow. Because if we're walking in integrity, and you look at verse 3, we won't slander or gossip against other people. We won't do evil or manipulate or take advantage of other people. Verse 4, we're not afraid of expressing or confronting unacceptable behavior in others. But we support and we encourage those who honor the Lord. People with, with that kind of character then are trustworthy. They're promise keepers. They say they're going to do something, they do it. They keep their oaths. And these are people who don't use money. These are people who are not greedy for money. They don't lend money at interest to their friends or their loved ones. They don't exploit situations to gain a financial edge. 
So I think what the psalmist is saying to us this morning, First Prayers, is that worship is life, and life is worship, and you can't separate the two. We can't love God and use people. We can't be holy before God, but unholy before people. We're called to love God and love our neighbor. And without this connection, then our worship is empty. The music might sound good. The church might look pretty. But God is looking at a different set of metrics, and our worship will be empty. In fact, the psalmist ends with a very shocking statement. Shocking to our ears, it says that the people who do these things, they will never be shaken, they will never be moved. And you say, well, whoa, my life's been shaken lately and I've been following God. My life's been, been rocked lately and I've been following God. Well, I don't think it means that. I think what he's saying is when you center your life in God and when the storms come and when the trouble come, you will still be standing after the storm is gone. And that's what Jesus said as he came to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the storms of life came, and the trouble came, and it beat against that house. But it didn't fall because it had its foundations on the rock. And that's how we will stand so that's what David is asking of this, this morning, that the forces of chaos around us will not undo us. We're never going to live a trouble-free life, but we can be secure that when we walk in integrity before God and others, we will never, ever be shaken. We will never fall. Here's what we want to do this morning. We want to read Psalm 15 also in light of the New Testament because we must do what is righteous. And when we don't, we must do what will make us righteous. And here I'm thinking of that tax collector. He lived a pretty messy life, but one day he decided he was coming home to God. And he comes to the temple, and he doesn't even want to go in. He stays way outside on the edge, and he drops to the knee, his knees, and he bows his head, and he beats his chest, and he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said in Luke 18 that this man went home justified because he genuinely came before God. So the purpose of this psalm this morning is not to judge and to condemn those who do not meet this requirement, but it's a call to encourage us, encourage us to come before God. And to know that there is a God who makes demands of us. There is a God who has requirements of us. But there is a God who forgives us when we fail, when we fall. And there is a God who enables us to grow in righteousness and in true holiness. And then the, the, the news gets even better. Because in John 1 and verse 14... While the people in the Old Testament had to walk literally to get to a temple and they had to bring an animal to be sacrificed, Jesus comes along and says that the word of God was made flesh. And that same word is used, dwelt among us. It literally means tabernacled among us. The word of God became flesh. Jesus then brings the temple to us 
Jesus then brings the very heart and love of God to us right where we are, and he invites us into his new life. I love the words of St. Augustine. These words bless my heart every time I read them. This is what it says, there is no sinner without a past, but there is no sinner without a future. That fills me with such hope. I hope it fills you with hope. There is no sinner without a past. There is no sinner without a future. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So one of the songs we don't sing at this church, but it's one that I love to sing because it reminds me of where I stand before God and how much I need God. The song goes something like this, only by grace can we enter. Only by grace can we stand. Not by our human endeavor. First phrase, may I say that again? Not by our human endeavor, but by the blood of the Lamb. Into your presence you call us, you call us to come. Into your presence you draw us. And now by your grace we stand. Lord, if you count our confessions, who could stand? Thanks that we're saved by your grace through the blood of the Lamb. And that's the merit and the basis on which we come. Now, here's the worst thing you could do this morning. You could walk out of here saying, that was a nice sermon, Pastor. You could. And God isn't looking for that, and I don't want to hear that. What I would love for you to do is to then say, Lord, search me. Lord, try me. See if there is, is any wicked way in me and cleanse me. That's the response God is asking of you. And I'm even wondering if there's someone here this morning that you know the ins and outs of church. You've got the lingo down, but your heart is still far from God. I'm talking to you too. And wouldn't it be wonderful today, this day, at the end of the service, we're going to have some people standing here at the front to pray that you would have the chutzpah, the guts, the gall to say, Lord, I'm coming home today. And allow one of these brothers and sisters just to pray with you so that you can enter and so that you can begin the journey of being that transformed person. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people say, Amen. Let's take a moment just to pray. Let's pray together. Lord, it is so true. You are a holy God. And that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And that is our predicament, O oh God, because we can never be holy. We're always messing up. We're always saying the wrong thing. We're always worshiping idols and misusing other people to our own advantage. We do not always speak the truth. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would look with mercy upon us and you would forgive us because we don't just want to come into the temple. We want to dwell with you. So come, Lord Jesus, use the words of Psalm 15 to awaken within us holy devotion. 
Thank you for your grace. Thank you that we're cleansed this morning by the blood of the Lamb. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.